The word why, what a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. A key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. Okay, so I don't normally do this for my my interviews, uh, really my my conversations, but I do want to warn you, and I say this with a smile on my face, that we're going to be talking about subjects and topics that I think most people want to be talking about, but sadly are afraid to because we're such a polarized society, not just here, but across uh, state and international borders. Really excited to be spending some time with a dear friend of mine, Irshad Manji. She is a New York Times bestselling author. The latest book is Don't Label Me. She's the founder of Moral Courage College and has an incredible program that we're going to talk about. Uh, today uh, with an organization that so many of you, if you don't know, you do interact with and or a part of the ecosystem. If you do work, um, if you do, if you're a working professional. So uh, Irshad, let's, t- let's use that as the backdrop. Why don't you just share the news of what you're doing? Because I've known you prior to this, uh, this project and to see this come to fruition in such an amplified way is incredibly transformational. That's my that's my subjective perspective. Uh, it has that potential, and you, I think, are the right person for it. So, give the audience the background, and then we're going to dive into the into the meat of it. Well, thank you for having me on, uh, Doctor. It's seriously a privilege. Um, yeah, we are announcing uh, the uh, official partnership between Moral Courage College, my company and the Society for Human Resource Management, whose acronym is SHRM. They are the world's largest association of HR managers. And uh, what we're actually announcing is that they will be uh, distributing an innovative inclusion program that my team and I have created. It's called Diversity Without Division. And it is the only program out there that uh, is research-backed, informed by the science of uh, unifying people in tense times. It's the only program out there that seeks to unify uh, not just employees, but in the other constituencies we serve as well, uh, teachers, parents. Um, students, and um, that includes not just the K-12 audience, but also a college and university. So you can see that, you know, wherever human beings gather and ego gets in the way of healthy collaboration, Moral Courage College, um, in partnership with SHRM, um, is going to be uh, offering diversity without division. And uh, we're just really excited about transforming the DEI landscape, which sadly is a very divisive landscape, largely because it is led by ideology rather than by the science of unifying people. And we're going to dive into that, Irshad. I want to, you know, Sherm talks about, they, 
Look, looking in the research, 95% of U.S. employees have been involved in polarizing workplace discussions, whether as participants, bystanders, or managers. And, and then it goes on to say that 41% say that they quit their jobs because their values are stigmatized by colleagues. And you mentioned you threaded that needle there when you were talking about sort of the professional environment or sector, the private sector, and we're also talking about K-12 and higher ed. And that to me is where it really stands out. I mean, we're talking about the great resignation in education. We're talking about the big quit. So these, for anybody out there who thinks, oh, this is just a passing fancy, like, no, 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 we are entrenched. This is, it does, I'm, look, I'm, the word that came to mind was warfare, but it does, I don't mean to be hyperbolic and I don't want to mm -hmm. gaslight at all, but these are the kinds of things that people are talking about behind their doors amongst their, their spouses or their friends or their family, but they're not saying in public that there's this sort of, this apathy that is down, there's just like this Eeyore, uh, it feels like, society-wide, that we don't know how to participate. It's not going to change. I, you know, I don't feel comfortable. Can you talk a little bit about the general mistakes when it comes to DE&I? Because I think we've just been grabbing onto these acronyms, whether it's CRT or DE&I, and depending upon what aisle we sit, then, you know, comes our opinion. And sadly, often ill-informed, uninformed. Well, uh, let me just respectfully contest one premise in your question, um, which is that there seems to be a general apathy. I don't think it's apathy at all. I think it's fear. Fear. And the fear of, quote, offending, the fear of, quote, saying the wrong thing, and ultimately the fear of being labeled, whether that's racist, whether that is, you know, misogynist, whether that is unpatriotic, uh, America hater, the labeling is running rampant from both extremes of our political spectrum. So do we need and another label then, Irshad, if we go back? So, so I can follow that line of thinking um, that it's not apathy, right? That it's fear. But my question is, where does that come from? Is it like I said here and I wonder, you know, do we teach civics and, you know, because I don't think we do um, at a very deep level throughout education. So I, I think you have a populace that doesn't understand how government works, how it <laughs> either can or it can work for or against. And so when you go into something and you don't have really a knowledge base, you, you kind of stay to the side because you don't want to be embarrassed. You don't want to be shamed into thinking that you don't have an understanding. And so maybe my interpretation that it's apathy is just, it's about a lack of knowledge over time. Is that wrong? Or am I, I even wouldn't even say that it's about a lack of knowledge. Knowledge can be passive. Knowledge can be mere information. What I would say the great void is, is a lack of skills. And here's what I mean. Even when schools and companies are, uh, quote, training people in diversity, equity, and inclusion, they are actually not teaching people how to communicate productively across differences, divides, and these days, even mutual disgust. This is why one of the big mistakes that DEI uh, mainstream DEI programs make is that they train people to be compliant. They do not motivate people 
to care. And let's remember, compliance is not buy-in. No, there's no emotion to compliance, right? I mean, if I think about compliance, I think about oh, a no, tax there's code. Emotion. Oh, there's emotion, all right. There's emotion. There's anger, defensiveness, uh, humiliation, which I'll say a little bit more about in just a moment. Nobody, or let me be perhaps less dramatic, <laughs> very few of us actually like being told what to think, believe, or say. That is compliance. You must think, believe, or say a certain way. And when people are told that, even if they do it, they don't do it with sincerity. They don't do it with heart. Yeah, you detach, don't you? That's right. That's exactly right. And then you become defensive. So it's not just that you detach and let it roll off your back. Then the resentments begin to percolate. Then it becomes grievance. And ultimately, it can uh, congeal uh, into humiliation. So first things first, because you asked me a question a couple minutes ago, you know, what are some of the big mistakes that DEI programs make? Number one, uh, compliance uh, rather than caring. And what the research shows is that, you know, when uh, people, young or old, have the tools to um, motivate others to understand where they're coming from and in turn have the tools to understand, not agree with, but understand where others are coming from, that is what lowers emotional defenses and makes us more motivated to engage. This is why uh, training is such a bad word as if we're all, you know, uh, animals uh, in a zoo um, who just need to be, you know, sort of, you know, kept under wraps. <laughs> it's funny you say that. That was the back. image I had, which was, you know, training dogs or something like exactly, that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But so number one, get rid of compliance. Start teaching us how and why to care. And that is what diversity without division does. So that's the first mistake that we are seeking to correct. The second mistake, and I've alluded to it, but let me go deeper. The second mistake that mainstream DEI programs make uh, is that whether implicitly or explicitly, they often blame and shame. Now, the problem with that is that blaming and shaming repeatedly leads to humiliation. And psychologists have found that the feeling of humiliation is so much more intense than even anger on the one hand, or get this, even happiness on the other. Humiliation sinks its claws deeply into us human beings and in turn leads to, I mentioned defensiveness and resentment, and ultimately it leads to blowback, right? So, you know, if, if we're going to be truly inclusive, We've got to treat people, all people, hence inclusion, with dignity. That's the second uh, way that diversity without division uh, differs from mainstream DEI. And finally, a third mistake that our work uh, 
you know, turns around. Third mistake that mainstream DEI makes is that it focuses on groups, pretty much ignoring individuality. This is important to understand because diversity exists within groups and not just between groups. So for example, Rod, I happen to be Muslim. Now, does that mean that I'm an avatar of every other Muslim out there? Does it mean that I think exactly like every other Muslim out there? Obviously not, and anybody who knows my history knows clearly <laughs> not, right? Now, if that's true of a historically marginalized group like Muslims, that there is, there, there is difference of thinking and perspective and interpretation within that group, then the same is true for, ready for this? White straight guys, okay? Meaning that not every white straight guy- I can vouch for that. Guy, well, there you are. <laughs> it means that not every white straight guy is a replica of every other white straight guy. So recognizing that we want to dismantle stereotypes is excellent. That is absolutely the right direction to go in. The wrong direction to go in is that we create new stereotypes. All Muslims think this way, or all white guys think this way, in the guise of dismantling old stereotypes. That is why it's super important to recognize that there is diversity within groups, that individuals are not identical simply because they belong to the same demographic group. And that's why diversity without division defines diversity to include different viewpoints, perspectives, and opinions. We do not shame, we do not blame anybody for having an unorthodox point of view. In fact, we welcome it because maybe they have something to teach the rest of us, not just the rest of us schooling that person in what it means to be correct or proper. Where do you think this is rooted in American culture, Irshad? If we think about, I mean, look, even in, not to talk politics, but I always find it curious, and I have for years, why is it that a politician will be, I guess, shot down or challenged if they've changed an opinion about a, about a matter or a bill that right. they voted on a decade ago? I mean, don't we teach young people that information in can, I don't know, result no. in a different outcome or a different no. opinion or attitude? No, we don't. No, we don't teach that. We don't teach that anymore. Uh, again, we have become such a polarized society that the pressure is on, both on the shoulders of teachers and on the shoulders of students when it comes to their peers to be seen as correct. So you're either with us or you're against us, whoever that us is. Is it fair to say that that is just an incredibly deep level of insecurity. I mean, yes. if, if a young person does it, we say, well, that's really, you know, they're, they're quite insecure. Let's understand why they're insecure. Right. And, and going back to the shame piece, I mean, years ago, I remember doing a lot of research. I mean, if you, the research on shame and the impact on the male gender, that's fascinating reading. Um, and it does make me think about some recent political figures in this, you know, the minute that they feel that, that humiliation and then the rage that results, um, it is, it is very interesting when you think about, you know, guys that look like me 
are sadly making most of the laws that are impacting the ways in which we understand everything from diversity and inclusion, yeah. what that looks and feels like. Right. Um, but can I say something about all of this? Um, I know that the um, one of the most popular retorts to you know the rage, the white male rage that you just referred to is that's white fragility. No, I say, no, it's not white fragility. It is human fragility. And here's what I mean. Um, you know, I have a backstory. Uh, and the backstory is that um, shortly after 9 11, um, I uh, came out with a book called The Trouble with Islam Today A Muslim's Call for Reform in Her Faith. And this book had been, you know, gestating in me for since I was 14 years old. So I'd taken the time to do my research, uh, ensure the scholarship was there and so forth. But I also knew that simply because of my labels, young at the time, <laughs> woman, <laughs> um, you know, raised in the West um, and queer, I would be pounced on, not because my ideas would be you know, uh, uh, would be uh, uh, lacking credibility, but because I would be lacking credibility thanks merely to the labels that others would put on me. This came to fruition. I was the recipient of vitriol, hostility, um, certainly verbal violence, and in some cases, um, death threats. But here's the big point. We as human beings don't like being told that we must change. No group likes being told that they must change. So it's not just white fragility. It's human. In this case, I experienced what some would call Muslim fragility. But the reality is it's human fragility because we are all born with a brain that has a primitive region that is constantly scanning for threats. And that primitive region is the home of the ego. And today, because of social media, uh, traditional media that operates on a business model uh, that revels in polarization, and what social scientists call political sectarianism, which means politics is the new religion, for all of those reasons and more, that primitive part of our brain is on hyper alert. So whenever we're being disagreed with about anything that we're passionate over, it is very easy for us to be manipulated by the primitive part of the brain to believe that now we are being attacked, not just our ideas, but us. And moreover, that your disagreement with my ideas is an attack, not just a disagreement. So you can see that the way we're wired colludes with you know, environmental factors that tempt, very successfully I might add, all kinds of people, regardless of their uh, you know, nationality, uh, race, uh, gender, tempts all kinds of people to become more defensive and therefore more dogmatic than they even mean to be.
And that is the science that I'm talking about that informs the work of diversity without division. This is why it is crucial that we teach the skills to communicate, not merely what's okay to think, say, or believe. In fact, the latter, if, if that's all we're doing, then it's not inclusive because it shuns people who think, say, or believe the quote, wrong thing. Instead, we've got to equip one another to hear without fear, to understand others in order to motivate them to then understand us. Very well said. Uh, Look, this is what's interesting, and I want you to help me out with this. So this is no shock to you. And I'm not a comedian uh, at all. But of course, the left uh, is very welcoming uh, of your perspective and your your scholarship and the work that you're doing. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, oh no. no. See, I knew you'd, you would you would correct me. I would say maybe more welcoming, maybe than the right. Is nope. that fair? Not nope. even fair. Really? Both. Both extremes feel <sighs> profoundly threatened by this work because it puts the responsibility on each of us to lower our emotional defenses before waiting for other people to do so. Because lowering our emotional defenses is what motivates others to do the same. And the extremes of both the left and the right are interested only in pointing fingers at one another rather than taking personal responsibility for how they are making each other more uh, resentful and more stressed and more threatened um, than any one of us needs to feel. That's what I love about you. You are, you are, you are right there to, to correct me, which is good. It, it makes me think, and that's what I hope the audience does as well. It helps us to think about, it's not either or, right? There are shades of gray. We're on a spectrum here as, a human, as human beings. Okay, so I, I wanna share a, a local example and get your analysis and how this should be structured. So for people who know me, they know that I live uh, in a very red state where we are now going after what, and people can call it what they want, but it's really avenues to ban books. Um, and so there is a, I mean, it's just, this debate is at the, at the, at the bus stop. And if you're on the wrong side of somebody's politics, you get dirty looks as they drive by. I mean, it's just, it's a very, very murky kind of a situation. If I call a spade a spade. I had, you know, uh, (laughs) I got pulled into advocacy recently and it was very surprising to me. I don't know if it should have been, maybe that's, you know, shame on me. But in my participation to advocate, to expand the conversation and not to be so, um, I think minimalized in our, our set of opinions and the way in which we can engage with the community. I got this inflow or shot of community members that are so afraid to speak up, but they, once they, I guess, deemed me to be a friendly, they then sent me all kinds of back channel communications. And I'm sitting here wondering, how do I help to get those individuals that seem to be now sort of bubbling up almost like, you know, it's like a gopher looking to see if he sees his shadow, you know, um, how do you, how do I, engage, how do you, how does someone engage the community that has been fearful to participate for any number of reasons? Because I think this is my experience is there's nothing unique to it. This is going on across the country That's where right. people that put themselves out into the public to share an opinion are finding that a, 
almost emboldens people to at least come out just a little bit. But how do we expand that? Is this the helping them with a set of skills to communicate in a different way? Like what's that next step? Headroom is produced by Old Soul, a one-stop marketing agency that understands the power of brand and nuance. Reach out to my guy, Matt at Old Soul and supercharge your brand and content strategy. That's Old Soul. Shoot Matt a note at aoldsoul.com. That's A-O-L-D-S-O-U-L.com. And now back to our guest. Well, first and foremost, the next step is to not assume why people are afraid, but rather to ask. Because as you point out, for all kinds of reasons, right? And because each individual is different there and has a different backstory and therefore different, you know, emotions and, you know, triggers and so forth. Um, it's important that the community understand that nobody is here to tell them this is what must be done, but rather that the solution is bottom up and therefore asking them, you know, what are the various reasons that you're afraid to speak up? will give them uh, an understanding that you actually care mm. to, uh, you know, to engage. Um, and that is a show of respect. So when you get the various answers that you get, the next step would be to ask a second question, which is, tell me more. That phrase, and you may know this already as an interviewer, that phrase, tell me more, research shows, completely opens up the conversation because it's unassuming, it's utterly inviting, and it uh, telegraphs that they still have the floor, that you're still listening. And the tell me more is really about ultimately asking, now that we know what's going on, now that we understand how you all are feeling, what do you think should be done? Knowing how you're all feeling, let's work with that reality rather than brushing it under the rug. If we were to learn, and this is a question for them, if we were to learn how to reduce our anxiety um, as we enter into conversations, let's say with, you know, your other, um, if we were to learn how to reduce our anxiety um, so that we could have more confidence and more calm as we engage with the so-called other side, would that be helpful? Um, would it be helpful to learn how to build trust before diving into the differences? Um, would it be helpful to learn how to ask sincere questions of the other side rather than judgmental questions? Would it be helpful to learn how to know when you're listening to understand rather than listening to win? Because of course, all That's this goes out the window. That is very key. We are very black and white in that regard, right? We want to win, win, win. Exactly. And while it feels great to win, the problem is there can only ever be one winner in a debate. And, you know, both your ego and the other person's ego is whispering to each of us, I'm not going to let you be the loser. So all listening, 
is jettisoned at that point, and therefore it becomes counterproductive. And so when you ask these kinds of questions, you're actually giving the community a sense of what is possible to learn, right? And in a way, many of these community members until now wouldn't have even had the language to understand what is possible for them to, to exercise by way of skills. I love that you brought up uh, language um, because I think it's something we don't take note of, right? We just assume, or it's just a part of us in that regard, but language is so important. It is so key in laying out understanding someone who is maybe a perceived adversary, or at least who has a different or alter, you know, an alternative opinion. And I want to tie that to help me understand. And, And I would think I'm not alone in this. I'm sure there are members of the audience that will, that will, I guess, say that they have seen this or they have maybe a similar opinion, but it feels like, it feels like, so let me just start with that premise. Sure. It feels like we are a society that everything is, is short form, meaning we don't really want to spend the time to acquire a deep knowledge of something. And maybe it's because we don't, sadly, time has become, our relationship with time has altered greatly, right? And we are filling our schedules, um, overfilling them, you might say. And I'm wondering if we're just not, our relationship with information and time, we're not spending, we're not spending that time needed to gain a deeper and more thorough understanding of everything from, I don't know, how to, how to repair my lawnmower or understand a culture that is now growing in my community because of uh, work up, you know, you kind of get where I'm going with this is that I I do. And yet I'm going to come back to something that, um, that I uh, referred to earlier. Honestly, I don't think the problem here is that we're not taking the time to understand. The problem here is that we're not being taught what is in our self-interest to understand. In other words, why should I bother? Why should I care? Why should I care? Exactly. And let me tell you why you should care to engage anybody who passionately disagrees with you on anything you care about. Here's why. Because the most reliable way to get a fair hearing for your own point of view is to give a fair hearing to somebody else's. That's, that's not my opinion. That is brain science. And as a result, this is part of the work that diversity without division does. And we're very intentional about framing this as being to your benefit. Because if all of this is only about being nice, about being compassionate, about being altruistic, good luck with that. Yeah. No, I'll tell you, and I'll tell you, many people would say, it's not my responsibility. It, you know, I didn't start it. Look at how much worse they are than we are. You get all of that resistance. But here's the key. If you believe profoundly that you have something to say and that it deserves to be heard, that's great. Now I'm going to teach you how it can be heard. And the counterintuitive truth here is that the way you communicate your message 
is at least as important as the message itself, because the way you communicate it will indelibly influence how it lands. So enlighten self-interest, become a better communicator of your point of view and watch how it gets the, at the very least, the respect that you've been wanting for it to get all along. Where does curiosity reside in this conversation? <laughs> it's huge. Uh, you know, I mentioned uh, in, you know, the when I was uh, telling you about some of the questions that you can ask your own community, um, you know, how do I ask sincere questions rather than judgmental ones, for example, right? You ask from a place of curiosity. You ask because you know that you don't have the full truth, not of the issue, but of the human being with whom you are engaged. You don't know their backstory. You don't know what you do need to know about why they've reached certain conclusions. All you know is they're wrong and I'm right. Okay, guess what? That might be true. That might be true. I'm not saying it's absolutely, no, it might be true. But for you to be heard by them, You've got to show sincerely that you care about them. That's what motivates them to then clear out the noise in their head about you and actually listen. So curiosity is a cornerstone. And even when, I'm going to go one step further, this might be surprising to some uh, to some of our listeners, even when you ask them a question and they give you a response and you're thinking in your head, that's crazy. That's insane. I, how in the world can that person actually interpret the issue that way? Yeah, you're being judgmental in your head, but here's where curiosity comes into play again. If you let your judgmentalism shut down the conversation, you're losing out on being heard in your own right. But if you let your judgmentalism be the reason for more curiosity, in other words, my God, that is just nuts. I've got to find out more. Yeah, I've got to really dig deeper into where this person is coming from. So I'm going to ask, Another sincere question like, tell me more, right? So again, curiosity is the engine of showing that you care enough about the other so that they then appreciate you're not in this to play gotcha. You're in this to understand, which in turn, and this is what the neuroscience tells us repeatedly, motivates them to then reciprocate. Do you see how it all comes back to enlightened self-interest? And yet the beauty is that you both will learn something that on your own, you would have never come up with. And even if you wind up completely disagreeing with the other person's conclusion, fine. But now you know more about what someone like that believes and why so that the next time you're engaged in a conversation 
uh, with someone who believes as they do, you'll have the information and the motivation to reframe how you express your point of view so that it speaks to their values and thereby keeps them engaged. Let's close with this. So this will be a, this is a, maybe a big question, but I, of all people, I know you can absolutely tackle this um, and set me straight. Um, how do you, look, I, we, we talk about this, you know, flippantly in other, I think, professions and sectors where it's, you know, if I do my job well, I'll be out of a job soon because everybody will know what they need to be doing kind of a thing. And so they're never, it has in my lifetime, we need you more than ever. All right. Again, this is my opinion. We need you more than ever. But on the flip side of that, my goodness, I also want you to get me out of work because it means we, were a, we are a populace that understands the value of a shared space. But I, and not to be cynical, but I feel like we're going to need more of your time, not less of your time, mm-hmm. because we're seeing this play out in every area and aspect of our day-to-day lives, regardless of the zip code that we reside in. So not that there's a question in there, but just maybe a reflection on that, on being able to square that you know you're providing, you're in your zone in this regard, right? Everybody has it. You have an incredible talent to be able to see through and understand and then communicate that out and share that with people. But at the same time, by doing that, it's also a reflection of where we are as a society. (laughs) True. And this is why I don't mind admitting that I'm working for the day when I'll no longer have work. Uh, Now, that's probably not going to happen in my lifetime, however short or long it may be. But but this I will say, and hopefully this leaves you um, on a note of um, some optimism. Uh, I recognize that there are a lot more um, teachers um, of this work needed which is why uh, part of my own mission um, is uh, teaching individuals from all walks of life, from organizations, from corporations, from schools, public and uh, independent, uh, from universities and colleges, from civic movements, um, to become what I call moral courage mentors. Uh, And we actually have, my team and I have a certification program underway now in which we are teaching cohorts to take this work back to their communities and in turn teach others the how of communicating productively across divides. Um, So you're right, you know, uh, we didn't get into this mess overnight and we're not going to get out of it overnight, but it is uh, pretty clear that when you in your community and I in my community see that it is possible to have a both and approach rather than an either or approach, and I see someone doing that and I see them teaching it, it becomes a lot more conceivable and therefore doable for me to learn it as well. Well there said. is hope, Rod. There is hope. Well, look, having these conversations uh, does provide hope because we are ha- we're having the conversation, and I think that's the first step in that regard. Uh, I want to make sure that people can find you. Where would you like them to go? Come to moralcourage.com, and you'll learn all about uh, diversity without division, 
uh, our program. Um, and if you'd like to become a you know facilitator, a moral courage mentor, and bring this work back to your communities, um, go to our nonprofit, moralcourage.org. Fantastic work. Keep it up. I know this is just the beginning. And to be partnering with SHRM uh, and their incredible um, just... <laughs> penetration across the world and what they're doing uh, to support human resources. I, it, it's a it's a wonderful collaboration and one that hopefully we'll be able to learn from and take not just from our places of work, but also into the homes that we reside in across communities uh, throughout this nation. We want to thank Irshad Manji. She's a New York Times bestselling author. Her latest book is Don't Label Me, and she's the founder of Moral Courage College. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom.